Well, if you turn with me now to Judges chapter 20, we're going to continue with our series through the book of Judges. This is a bit of a longer uh, section of Scripture, uh, 48 verses. So please do pay careful attention to the reading of God's Word. Before I begin, I just want to, because it's a longer section, just give you some lay of the land of where we're going to be going. There's three situations here, three circumstances in this episode that we see, first of all, there is the man, the Levite, who had brought this Levite, or this concubine that he had, we'll hear more about in just a moment, that brings all Israel together, and we hear their response as this atrocity that was committed against his wife, and they all come together to try and figure out what to do and what happened. And the second, this begins a war against the people of Israel within themselves, a civil war. And so we hear an accounting of this civil war that happens through much of this section. And then the end is the end of this civil war where there is a utter destruction of this tribe of Israel, of the people of Benjamin. So that's just a framework for us as we read through this passage. So hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead." So I took a hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go out to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by a lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man." And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribes of Benjamin, through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this evil that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, everyone who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss.' 
Then all the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people arose in the morning and camped against Gibeah, and all the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. And the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin on the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah, as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And, as at other times, it began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us, as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar, and the men of Israel who were in ambush, rushed, rushed out of their place from Ma'ara Giba. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these men All these were men who drew the sword, so the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted in the men in ambush who they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed to attack against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city. The men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. 
But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamins looked behind them, and behold, the whole city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. 5,000 of them them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get get him. And 2,000 of them were struck down. So all the men who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. And all of the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Ascends the reading of the word of the Lord. Judges 20 follows on the heels of what is a very difficult passage, and this is in itself not a much easier passage to read. The circumstance of the Levite, who had sent his concubine out to these men who ruined her and mistreated her horribly and then ended up leading to her death, now we see this outfall that happens from this situation. What are we to make of this chapter 20, this long passage from Judges, of all that's happening in the middle of Israel? Well, what I would like us to focus on this morning as we hear this passage and we navigate through all the, the circumstances that are happening here is when our desire for justice turns to a devastating execution of vengeance. When our desire for justice turns into a devastating execution of vengeance. What I'd like us to think about today is how we think about justice. How do we think about responding to when wrong has been done and our rightness in pursuing justice in that situation? Well, to help us think through this, I want to see the three main circumstances that are happening or acts in this episode that we see. First is the division of Israel. See, a divided woman and then a united man leading to a divided people. Second is the destruction of Gibeah, this city where the atrocity occurred. And lastly, the devastation of Benjamin. Benjamin is the tribe in which Gideah resided. And the battle spilled all the way out into the whole tribe of Benjamin, leading to their almost complete ruin. So first off, the division of Israel. We see a divided body unites Israel. Back in the end of chapter 19, this Levite, after his his concubine shows up dead at his doorstep, takes her home, divides up her body, and carries out what is a very gruesome act to us, and rightly so. 
She had been violated all night long and abused to the point of death. And then here he takes her up and sends her out as a way to summon Israel for justice. And it is a practice, although uncommon, even in the ancient world, it was not uncommon or it was unheard of for them to take animals and do a similar thing with animals. We see in Judges or 1 Samuel that King Saul does a similar act with two bulls, separates their parts and sends them out to all of Israel to summon them. But this is a covenant act, basically saying, if you don't come to join me in battle, may you be like these bulls. There were other ancient kings at that time who did similar things. But as we hear in the end of chapter 19, the people of Israel say, regarding this woman's body, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt. It is a first time something like this has ever happened, that they've ever even heard of it. So this body becomes a mechanism that this Levite uses to summon all Israel to act for justice. At least that's what it seems like. An unspeakable crime has been committed in Israel against this woman, and as we will see, against this man as he sees it. And the point here is to bring such a great disturbance that everybody has to act. Such a great thing that would cause consternation and trouble for people. They think, we must do something. And so they come. All Israel responds. The whole people come, as the text tells us, as one man. And for the first time in the whole book of Judges, all of Israel, minus one tribe, comes together. United, or so it seems. But the tribe of Benjamin, were given a little hint here, hears of this. It's as if this body was not circulated among them. They hear that all Israel has been gathered together, but they themselves have not been invited. What's going on? Something is up, and we have not been invited to what's about to happen. And so Israel begins their inquiry into this circumstance. What led to this woman's body being sent around like this? Tell us, how did this evil happen? And now we hear the testimony of this Levite, the, the husband of this concubine. And it's an interesting testimony if you reflect upon what happened in chapter 19. Remember in chapter 19, he is staying at a fellow Ephraimite's house in the, land, in the city of Gibeah, and the house is surrounded by these worthless men who come and try to ask for this man that they might violate him. Another word for rape. And they ask for him that he might be delivered out to them. And this old man who is showing hospitality to him goes out and tells these men, no, do not do this. This is an evil act. And suddenly, it seems like out of nowhere, this Levite who's in the house sends his concubine out as if, as if a way to appease these men and end this so they don't come after him. So with that in mind, we hear his testimony. And there's a few things for us to think about when we compare his testimony with what actually happens. First of all, there's no mention of the man whom he stayed with. I was in this town. 
And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded me at the house. Well, whose house? If you know anything about testimony in Old Testament scripture, you need to have two or three witnesses. He conveniently leaves out the other witness to this crime. There's no mention that he sent this woman out to the people there. I and my concubine to spend the night, and the leaders rose against me, surround the house. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine. No mention of his action in this. And then what does he say? He distorts the truth. They meant to kill me. Well, in, Genesis, or in Judges 19, there's no intention that's mentioned of them wanting to kill him. He's making it seem like he is the victim in this circumstance. This just happened to my concubine. They were coming after me to kill me, to destroy me. Everything is surrounding this man. Me, 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 I, I, I is what is repeated over and over in this passage. He is only concerned with himself, and he conveniently leaves out the one person, the one person who could contradict his testimony. And our indignation should rightly rise against this man. It should anger us that a man who mistreats his wife this way goes out and lies about it to an entire nation. But we also must understand and remember that we do this kind of thing ourselves, do we not? Maybe we have not been in a circumstance as atrocious as this, but we do tell half-truths and misrepresent circumstances for our benefit, to protect ourselves, as this man is doing here. We want justice to go our way and not to come against us for our responsibility and our sinful actions. We know we have our own wrongdoing, but we're not about to admit what we have done in those situations. Kids, do you do this to your brothers and sisters? Here's a circumstance that I know that I did when I was a child. Your brother or sister hits you. And then you go to your parents and you tell them, Mom, Dad, so-and-so hit me. And then your parents ask the very fateful question, Well, why did they hit you? Oh, well, they, I, had, I was playing with their toy. Oh, there's a convenient omission of information in that. How did you obtain that toy? And then you talk to the other sibling and you find out that that toy was taken. We smile at this circumstance because we're familiar with it. But we adults do the similar thing. We're no different. We just have more sophisticated ways that we lie. We tell half-truths to protect ourselves and to get the justice that we want. We portray ourselves as the victim, the primary victim, as this man has done. But we see the devastation that lies bring about. The response of the people of Israel is not to do justice in this instance. The just thing to do would be to find another witness. Well, they devise their own way, and they go in, and now they are going to render their judgment. Their judge, jury, and executioner all wrapped up in one. 
And so they decide, and they gather all provisions in verses 8 through 11 to go out, in essence, to war. They are ready to execute justice on these wrongdoers. And that's the right thing. We should want to execute justice, to carry out justice, when wrong has been done. But they have not carried out the more important step that comes first, to find out if this is in fact true, if this is in fact an accurate representation of the situation. And so they go out to Benjamin, and they demand, what has taken place among you? And then they say this, now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge this evil from Israel. They show up at the doorstep of Benjamin, and Benjamin gets what's happening. You didn't come here to ask me the facts of this case. We might give you a little more information here like the fact that this Levite sent his own concubine out. That doesn't excuse the actions, the atrocious actions of these men, but we would learn a little bit more. There would be multiple people who would suffer the death penalty in this situation. So the tribe of Benjamin does what people often do when they realize that they're on the wrong side of of an unjust situation. They draw up the battle lines. The hearts harden, and they get ready for war. And this is what exactly what they do. They all muster their people. Benjamin surrounds the city of Gibeah where this evil has occurred, and Israel themselves arrays themselves in battle. And then we see our second scene in this book, or this episode of Judges 20, the destruction of Gibeah. And the war unfolds over three days, and it follows this format each day. Israel goes and inquires of the Lord. Israel goes to war, and then there is a defeat. The first two days is the defeat of Israel, and the last day is the defeat of Gibeah and Benjamin. But in each of their inquiries of the Lord, there is an increasing urgency in their request and pleading and uncertainty in their mission. Is this really what we ought to be doing, going against our own brothers? So the first day, something fascinating here is what they ask, or what they almost tell the Lord they're going to do. They have already assumed they're going to attack Gibeah and the Benjaminites. Who will go up for us? Not, should we go up against them? Not asking the Lord for instruction about what the right course of action is. They have already decided for themselves what the right course of action is here. Who's going to do this? And a fascinating phrase here shows up. Judah will go up first. Now, it's been a long time since we read Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, but this is a verbatim repetition of what we hear in the very beginning of Judges as the people of Israel enter the land of Egypt. And this is what Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say. Let me turn there. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us first against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Here at the end of Judges, the tribe of Judah is now the one who is going up not against the Canaanites, 
but against their own brothers. A complete inversion of the circumstance of the situation in Israel. There is a subtle commentary here as well by this author that the people of Israel have now become Canaanized themselves. They have become just like their enemies among whom they live. But there is one thing that's missing from that that we hear in the opening verses. I have given the land into their hand. There's no promise here. But Judah, or Israelites, acting on what they think is a hopeful situation, go straight into battle. And the war does not go as they had hoped, as they planned. Benjamin is far more resilient. They have 700 men who can strike a hare with a stone. These are elite warriors, as we saw. This is what Ehud, one of the warriors in Judges chapter 4 is. He's a man who is like a navy seal, and they have 700 of them. Despite the overwhelming majority of Israel in this battle, they have these elite warriors, and so they are able to withstand this attack. And then the Israelites come again, but this time they come different. They're weeping, and they question their task. Shall we go up? Not who's going to go up for us, but now Shall we do this? Is this what we should be doing, Lord? Shall we go up against our brothers now? No longer is it just the tribe, but it is a recognition of who they are going up against, their own brothers. And the Lord sends them back as if they have not yet understood the full weight of the circumstance they find themselves in. The cycle repeats. Israel goes up, attacks, and they're defeated again. A devastating blow. Now a whole tenth of the armies are subdued of Israel. 40,000 in total. They come again. They weep. They fast. They offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. And they inquire of the Lord again. And we learn that the ark is present here. The ark of the Lord was in Bethel during this time. But the only person in this whole chapter who gets a name, is, shows up. Phineas. We'll learn about him in just a moment, but it turns out Phineas has been inquiring of the Lord this whole time. Our English ESV translation handles it a little bit differently than some of the other English translations do. And it says, shall we go up? But our original Hebrew and many other translations, I think, rightly handle this, where it's Phineas speaking here by himself. Shall I go up? Shall I go up again? Who is this Phineas character? Well, we learn that he is the son of Eleazar, the son of Abraham. He's the high priest. He is the high priest of all of Israel in this time. But we learn he is Aaron's grandson. Now, we think we've been going through this whole journey through Judges and it must seem like hundreds of years have passed at this point. But here we learn now a mere 60 years has passed from the time of Moses to this grandson, Phineas. This is not a much later episode in the book, in the story of Judges, in the life of Israel. This is happening the moment they enter into the promised land. 
Judges is ending where it begins. Israel is wholly corrupt in this situation. The reality that we're confronted here is that things in Israel did not merely get progressively worse. Things have been completely awry from the moment they enter into the promised land. The son of Moses we saw in a couple chapters ago, and now the, son, the grandson of Aaron. The whole nation is becoming corrupt in just a few generations. It's one thing we learn about this Phineas character. The second thing we learn is that he is the high priest. And the high priest was the one who would enter into the tabernacle to offer the sacrifices to make sure that the sins were atoned for and that blessing would be offered to Israel on behalf of the Lord, is to maintain and keep the relationship between the people of Israel and their God so that God could dwell among them. But there is one offering that's conspicuously absent from the list of offerings that are given. Peace offerings, burnt offerings, and no mention of sin offerings. And now the one who will go up against Benjamin is focused on Phineas. Phineas is the one who must go and lead the people in this. In fact, who will go up single-handedly, it seems as if the text is telling us. Shall I go up and fight against the people of Israel? And in the Lord responds in verse 28 at the end. And the Lord said, go up for tomorrow. I will give them into your hand. In Hebrew, that word is first person singular. Into your hand, Eleazar. Or into your hand, Phineas. And Phineas goes now to accomplish the priestly task to rid this nation of sin, of the devastation that has been brought about among these people. We must understand that the whole nation is a picture of the tabernacle itself. It is the dwelling place of God. They are the tabernacle as a, micro, as a macrocosm. That is why the ark is mentioned here in Bethel, the center place of the entire nation of Israel. It is as if the entire nation of Israel is a tabernacle and God is the one who dwells among them. And now that tabernacle has been defiled by the most atrocious action and must be purged. Exodus 29, 44-46 says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, among whom Phinehas is, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And the most devastating piece that we learn is that this land and city of Gibeah is the place where Eleazar, Phineas's father, was died and buried, and that city was given to Phineas and his father. Joshua chapter 24. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town 
of Phineas, his son, which had been given to him in the hill country of Ephraim. The high priest must go up against his own hometown. We begin to understand the devastation here that Israel is feeling as they're going up against their own high priest's city. And so the battle it continues. The high priest is suffering on account of the sins of the people. And then the battle continues. It is brought to an end as the city of Gibeah is portrayed in a twofold manner. It resembles the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, going up in smoke. But second, there is a word here that can be translated and pictures for us what is ultimately happening. In verse 40, when the signal began to rise out of the city, in a column of smoke, the Benjamins look, Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole city, the whole city went up in smoke to heaven. That word for whole is often translated in our Old Testament as a whole burnt offering. It is as if Eliezer has gone in and offered up this city as a burnt offering to purge the, is, the evil from Israel, his own people. It is a sin offering that brings an end to this unholy circumstance. But the scene doesn't end. We wish it ended here. We wish that this is all that would happen. But Israel is carried away with their bent for their own version of justice. A new word enters into our text, verse 41. Then the men of Israel turned. And we see that word turned show up over and over in this remaining section. It is like the story of Gideon. Even after God grants Gideon victory, he's not done. They're not satisfied with divine justice. And the text literally turns to its darkest point. They bring utter destruction on those who oppose them, their own brothers within Israel. Not only do they wipe out the army, then the whole people of Israel turn against the entire tribe of Benjamin. Now people who were not caught up in this atrocious, atrocious act. And now the people of Israel carry out what they were commanded to do against the enemies of Israel. Harem warfare, complete, total, and destruction of the cities. But who do they do this against? Not their enemies, their brothers, their own countrymen, men, women, children, and beasts. They kill every living thing and burn the cities to the ground. And the people of Benjamin, we learn, are brought to the, end, the brink of extinction. We'll learn what they do in chapter 21 next week. But over and over and over in this passage, Israel is again doing what is right in their own eyes. The refrain that we hear in this book, a people who thinks, we know what's right and we know how to do it and we are going to carry it out to its fullest extent no matter what it costs. It is the great tragedy of Israel. The only people that the, is, that the nation of Israel 
as a whole people, as one man tells us, carry out God's command to wipe out a people is their own brothers. It shows us our own hearts. We're not content with God's justice. We want man's justice. We want our own version of justice. When people oppose us, we're not content with the justice that God provides that requires equal payment for the wrong that's done. We want that person wiped off the face of the earth. We want them destroyed. We want them dead and gone, and we will do anything to get it. We will lie. We will deceive. We will scheme. And sadly, there are times in our lives when God, like he does with Israel, allows this to take, take place. He gives them over to their sinful desires of their hearts. So what shall we do? What do we do in this situation? This whole circumstance shows the unholiness of men in their pursuit of justice. But God brings his own justice, true, perfect justice, through his high priest. And we know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is that one true high priest who brings about perfect justice. That he is the one who suffers on behalf of the city of his people. He endures the tragic judgment that is due to us for our injustice against him. But even in a more tragic scenario than what we saw with Phineas, he is the city itself taking the judgment upon himself, suffering on behalf of his brothers. Unlike Phineas, he dies in their place. And so justice is transformed for us today. And we look to Christ because he is the one who brings an end to the animosity because he endures the justice and the injustice himself. He is the true temple, bearing in himself the cleansing for sin, the whole offering for sin. He destroys sin itself. But he doesn't do this by destroying us. He does it by enduring our punishment in our place. So what do we do? We turn to Jesus. We see that there is God's perfect justice for sinners like us. There is God's perfect justice against our brother's sins, our fellow Israelites, as we might say. And it's from that place that we can turn and seek true justice, perfect justice. This is not a call to forsake justice, but it is the only pathway we will learn to pursue true justice. And we pursue that through prayer. Asking the Lord that he would do his work of perfect justice. Not like the men of Israel who go about their own pathway and only after the fact begin to start to seek the Lord in the way that he wants them to. Lord, you guide and direct me in this path. And then we endure wrong with patience. Because like our Savior, he endured 
wrong with patience, and trusting himself to a God who would bring justice. So brothers and sisters, turn to Jesus Christ and rest in his perfect satisfaction for the justice of God against your sins. And from that place, knowing that justice has been accomplished on the cross, seek it in ways that are righteous in prayer and expectation for God to act on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Christ and the perfect justice that he has accomplished in our stead. We are great sinners, but he is a great Savior. All these sins and more he has borne for us when he died in our place. Lord, may we turn to him and find our rescue in him, that he has not turned against his brothers, but he has borne them in himself. Father, we do pray for our hearts as we seek justice in this world against the wrongs that are done against us. We do cry out that you would bring justice where it is needed. But Lord, help us to be patient and wait upon you and not be like Israel, seeking our own ways. We rest and trust in your work, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.